90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Ah, oh, it's been a busy week. I don't know about you. Oh, it's been crazy. I am running experiments, which means an entire week of long days being bent over a machine, making samples, dealing with all kinds of problems. It's It feels like you got hit by a truck uh. every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my magnetometer is still not fixed, so I'm just going to leave it at that. I understand your pain. <laughs> um, uh-huh. oh. Well, I got to go down to Wichita Falls, Texas, and give a an invited talk at Midwestern State University, mostly because the director down there, uh, Dr. Price, listens to our podcast. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so that was super exciting. Um that's really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And I had a great time. And it was a really interesting department. And the school was beautiful. And we had a great talk and went out to dinner with some grad students. And it was just a super blast. And I don't know if they had much fun as I did, but I think they did. So that's good. <laughs> so what did you talk about? Um, well, I talked about some of my um, some of my thesis work and stuff that is still sort of ongoing. So I talked about those plastic dikes. Um, in Colorado, and then I've also done work on the same sort of formations in Scotland. So it's kind of an overall talk putting it together. Um, a lot of students down there, obviously, go into the oil industry, and so I kind of gave it a really sedimentary lean to it and talked about these weird features and why they're unique and what PMAG can do for you. <laughs> yes. So at some point, we should actually talk about those classic dikes, because I got to see them with you when we went to the field to do some sampling, oh, and mm -hmm. they were very strange. Uh, we had lots of geomechanical arguments oh. late at night on how these things might have and we been there. And we still can. That was sort of the crux of everyone's questions, was how did they get there? Um, and you, you, were in the, you were in the slideshow, too. I showed some oh. pictures of you standing next to them for scale, so there you go. That's, uh, <laughs> wow, that's... A while back and uh -huh. long before the beard. Exactly. <laughs> you look like you were 12 years old. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but another thing that I didn't want didn't to talk about until on here, because I'm very proud of myself. So with all this magnetometer work and talking to you and talking to Frank, um, the guy that helps build him, and he was like, just get in there. You don't need to be afraid of all this electrical stuff. Just get in there and test it out. You said the same thing. I had a broken record player, and I fixed it this weekend all by myself. <laughs> Hey, congratulations. <laughs> um, I was very excited about it because it wouldn't stay on the right speed. And I knew it was like a right. switch issue. And I'm like, right. I paid 80 bucks for this thing. Like, I'm going to figure this out. And I took it apart. And all the electronics were there. And I found there was a little wire that was sort of cross-connecting. And so I stuffed it back where it went and screwed it all back on. And ta-da. And there you go. Yeah. Just giving my electrical engineering degree right now. <laughs> <laughs> so next is the magnetometer right uh well yeah mm -hmm. that's ongoing <laughs> i've almost but hey that i, I heard there was progress this yeah week. i've almost got it licked next week i there shall rejoice <laughs> <laughs> well so we actually got a audio comment several weeks ago we reminded people that they could use the voice memo app on their phone and send us an audio comment so listener mike took us up on that 
and sent in a question after listening to our show about hurricanes, about air pressure. And it's, it turns out it's going to be the spark for this entire show. So let's listen to what Mike had to say. I just finished listening to the hurricane show and you inspired me to use my voice memo feature on my phone, period. (laughs) It's like I'm doing voice to text, but not really. I was thinking about low pressure and high pressure and I was reminded of a meteorologist friend of mine describing high pressure as deeper atmosphere. Like you can see, if you're looking at the earth from the side, a high pressure bulge in the atmosphere but I don't really understand pressure that well, so I would love to hear in your future meteorologically oriented programming um, a better way to understand pressure or just more about pressure because for me it's not totally intuitive, but at the same time um, I know it's a big important part and I'd like to understand it better. Thanks. So that is a pretty big question, and it's going to take us a while to address it because air pressure is complicated, even though it seems basic. Uh, Right, exactly. I love that in your email response to Mike, you were like, yeah, that's going to take a while. We'll probably just do a show on it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, because as everything in meteorology, you know, we start out with this statement that's going to sound... uh, absurd and you say well no wonder you can't predict the weather we're gonna say let's assume that air's a fluid and Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we're gonna go Mm -hmm. from there right um i often make that joke in class all the time is that i paid you know fifty thousand plus dollars just to learn that air acts as a fluid except when it's not not. (laughs) (laughs) exactly That, that, that's what the master's is for, right uh, there. Ex- yeah, exactly. All the lies you get told and then disproving all the lies. Um, right. But there's a lot of that fluid above us, right? I was actually surprised at how much our atmosphere waves. Yeah, so I didn't know this off the top of my head, and I thought, oh, this will probably be an interesting number. So I pulled out some meteorology textbooks from probably my sophomore year at OU, and it turns out the weight of the entire atmosphere is about 5,600 trillion tons. That's that's heavy, man. That's heavy. <laughs> that's like 10 to the 18th power. Yeah, that's a lot. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, you know it's heavy. And I figure that maybe at some point we probably had to calculate that for some homework problem. Seems like a it, pretty good chemistry issue. It does. It seems like a, I don't know, dynamics now. Maybe. I've blocked those out. Meter one or meter two, maybe. Yeah, it seems It seems like a question that we would have had on a test. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which are most of these things we're going to go over have been at one time or another. Oh, it's true. Yes. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. first we have to start by defining what is pressure before we start, start talking about air pressure in general. So pressure in terms of units is a force exerted on some area. Okay. Like yep. a Newton per square meter. Uh, but let's let us let us talk Yankee units for a second. <laughs> uh, yeah. One that most people in the U.S. are probably familiar with is the PSI, the pound per square inch. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that is literally a force per area, pound per square inch, mm-hmm. or a weight. But eh, we're using imperial, so we're not going to split hairs. Yes. 
Uh, <laughs> That's a whole nother show. <laughs> right. But something in, uh, in metric, it would be a Newton per meter squared, which we call a Pascal. Right. And so what do we have at our standard atmosphere? Because we always have to have something to, you know, equate as normal. And that is 101,325 Pascals. And yes, that's at, at sea, sea level. level. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's our, our base level for both geology and atmospheric science is the same. But you will almost never hear a, uh, a meteorologist or certainly the, the TV weather person say the pressure in Pascal. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> one Pascal is not a lot. Uh, no, not at all. And you won't hear you know, research meteorologists talk about that anyway. And so we use this thing, um, well, technically it's a hectopascal, right? Yeah, which hecto is the prefix for 100. Mm -hmm. So you move the decimal two places to the left. So 1013.25 hectopascals. Right. Uh, but I don't know about you. I was thinking about this when we were putting the notes together for this show. I've never used the hecto prefix anywhere else. <laughs> no, and I was thinking about hectares, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. <laughs> that's the only thing that like came to mind when I was thinking about that. And I do want to yell at you because all these notes are in hectopascals, basically, and we talk about millibars in meteorology. It's the same thing. <laughs> it doesn't. One look hectopascal the same. is one millibar. <laughs> it just has an extra letter, and one of them's capital. <laughs> That does make it fancier. Um, <laughs> Shannon. And, and it also is in, you know, real units, uh, look, not bars. Look, <laughs> I think in millibars, but most people probably don't when we're talking about barometric pressure, right? Most people think in this awful thing. It's Ooh. awful. <laughs> Inches of mercury. Abbreviated I-N capital H little g. See, it's got a capital letter. <laughs> it, it does, but yeah, it's the height of a column of mercury supported by the pressure of the atmosphere. And you might say, why mercury? Because it's toxic. Well, it's heavy. Right. It's it's very dense. If you use a column of water, it is exceedingly tall. Uh, so yes. you have to use mercury to make these. And it's still tall. I mean, the average oh, one atmosphere, which is its own unit, uh, <laughs> Of, of the standard atmospheric pressure is 29.92 inches of mercury. So over two feet of mercury in a column, that's enough to cause an environmental disaster. Uh, right, exactly. And think about trying to keep that safe out on a boat at sea. <laughs> right. You know, because um, that's what I think of. <laughs> so we've got a whole bunch of, of different measures there, but these are all the same, you know, barometric pressure at sea level. So... 1,013 millibars or hectopascals is equal to 29.92 inches of mercury, or if you're into it, 14.7 PSI. So your tires have about two atmospheres right. of pressure for reference inside. Unless you're talking about your road tire on your road cycle. And I bring this up because there was some bicycle hating going on in the Slack chat room. <laughs> oh, yeah, there um, was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then we're talking about way more PSI than that. But I digress. <laughs> Exactly. So <laughs> anyway, the most common way that I've heard air pressure explained is it is the weight of the air above you. Okay. And so we both had this professor mm -hmm. at OU, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Claysol, 
And in the classes I had, if you said something that was absurdly wrong, he would say, that's a dollar, and you were therefore <laughs> fined a dollar. Uh, so I have to qualify saying air pressure is the weight of the air above you by saying it's not really, and we're going to explain that, so I don't owe Dr. Claysville a dollar by mail. <laughs> oh, exactly. He's the state climatologist now. He could uh, definitely call in that dollar. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's not really if... It, the example that he always said when people would say something like this in class is if it were truly the weight of what's above you, there would be giant swaths of destruction at the end of airport runways. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, he loved his airplane uh, airplane problems. Oh, he did. We had lots of mm-hmm. thermo problems with airplanes and ovens. Uh, but <laughs> yep. Yep. So what is pressure then? And I think we have to really get down into what is air right so air (laughs) it's a bunch of little molecules hanging out like there's no real you know line to where the atmosphere ends i mean it's just a whole bunch of air molecules moving around and that's the pressure is them bumping into each other right so there's less and less and less of these air molecules as you go up but if you are at roughly sea level on, let's say, a, a mild day, and you're run-of-the-mill, you're out in a t-shirt kind of day. Mm-hmm. If you were able to follow a single air molecule, it would be colliding about 10 billion times each second with other air molecules and with things around it. That was an awesome number. Yeah, so it's moving really fast. It's got <laughs> yeah. a lot of energy. We know that these molecules, how fast they're moving around is a function of their temperature. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, air is pretty warm, relatively. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So each time it bumps into something, imagine if it were a billiard ball. And we're not going to go into whether it's an elastic or inelastic yep. collision and all of this. <laughs> but imagine it were a billiard ball and somebody was throwing this thing around where it hit things a hundred or 10 billion times a second. It would be exerting some pressure... <laughs> Yes. On those things around it. So each time it hits something, it's a little push. It's a little nudge. And you sum up all of these nudges, and that's pressure. It's force exerted on an area. Right. And you can't untie that from temperature, which is like my favorite definition in all of science, which is the kinetic, the measure of the kinetic energy of a molecule. So you got a lot of them hanging out down here around sea level, right? Bumping into each other, higher temperatures. And so as you go... Up in elevation, not only does your temperature decrease, but your pressure decreases too. Right. And it's not linear. No. No, not even close. (laughs) Right. So it's one of those exponential decay things, like everything that's not linear in nature. Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. Exactly. So if we were able to say that the entire atmosphere has to have a uniform density from sea level up, so we get rid of exponential pressure decrease uh, as you go high. We're going to have this uniform density. How high would the atmosphere be? This number is crazy to me because our atmosphere is really high up there. But if you did this, it's it would end, right? This is uniform. So you would stop at approximately 27,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. So about eight and a half kilometers, if you had the entire mass of the atmosphere at uniform density, that's 
even thinner than it is now, which it's already kind of a thin shell around the Earth. Oh, uh, right. That's insane. But it's like, you know, the troposphere where all our weather happens goes up to like 10 kilometers. So if that tells you how sort of spread out that is. Yeah. We're pretty spread so, out. <laughs> and, and instead, luckily for us, you know, the, the pressure goes down a factor of uh, two every 18,000 feet or so for the, the lower part of the atmosphere. And so we would say something like that. Uh, or you could do an E-folding height, which would be like not quite eight kilometers. Uh, yep. If, if, if you like your scale heights, for yeah. those of you familiar with scale heights. <laughs> oh, man. When I read that, I kind of had some twitches of flashbacks of scale height stuff. <laughs> I, yeah. I will say. So. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then I'll give you more uh, flashbacks. Oh, Do you remember no. the hydrostatic equation? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I try to block it out, <laughs> but it's in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So the hydrostatic equation is one of the early equations that we get introduced to in meteorology. Yeah, it's it's pretty, relatively it's simple. Pretty easy. Yeah. That's exactly what I was just going to say comparatively. <laughs> right. And so it's a differential equation, equation that says a change in pressure with height. Uh, so DPDZ, if you think about it in calculus, oh, is man. negative... Roji. Oh, this is killing me. <laughs> yeah, so all, all that all that really says is that there's this massive air above you with some density. Density is a function of height, as we know. It's being pulled down by the force of gravity. And with this simple linear equation, you can determine what the pressure is at a given height, assuming that there are no significant accelerations. Yeah, well... That's a bad, like, bad assumption. You know, wind. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is just, you know, the difference between pressures. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, again, you know, we'll go back to a, a Dr. Claisel quote of uh, when acceleration, when A is greater than G, that's when you do not get your in-flight drinks and you buckle your seatbelts. Uh <laughs> Exactly. But we use the hydrostatic approximation to do a lot of things, and it's really not that bad. Yes. In most situations. If you're looking inside a tornado, eh, maybe it's not the best thing Yeah, to I was going to say. And um, for any Dynamics 2 homework problems, it's probably not the best to start anyway. But <laughs> Right. So <laughs> one other thing that before we start answering the, the real question of is the atmosphere thicker <laughs> in areas of high pressure? We're getting there. Uh, I, I want to go ahead and and nip this one because I know somebody's going to ask it. Uh, I did for a while. Uh, I uh, figured this was a pet peeve, and that's why this made this in here. <laughs> yeah, so water boils when the vapor pressure is equal to the atmospheric pressure. Okay, yeah. So at higher altitudes, the atmospheric pressure is lower. Mm-hmm which means that boiling water is easier. It happens at a lower temperature. But if you've ever done it, you know it takes forever. Yes. And <laughs> if you want to cook any food, you'll notice on the box, you know, it says if you live in Denver, uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that you need to cook this longer. And that is because when you're very high, the boiling point's lower. And it takes you longer to impart enough energy, the same amount of energy, to the food because things boil at a lower temperature right exactly and you want your your brownies to be safely cooked and have all that salmonella killed exactly <laughs> so 
in high pressure, is the atmosphere thicker? Well, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and this goes back to that whole, our atmosphere isn't, we don't have a defined edge, really. It, it just sort of filters out into space at the top of the thermosphere. Right. And if you were to look at the, the terminator of the Earth, right? Right. So mm-hmm. the edge of the atmosphere from space, you're not going to be able to see the variations on the scale that we're talking about. Right. So we're talking about, you know, maybe maybe a few kilometers. I mean, that seems like a lot. But when you talk about the scope of the atmosphere. Yeah. And the scale of looking from space. Yeah. It's kind of not. <laughs> right. So, so Hence the kind of... <laughs> Right, but we do look at this, right, as meteorologists. Right, and it's funny because I think that when we listen to that question from Mike, and then we're like, hmm, we start thinking about it, I'm like, well, yeah, of course it changes because heights are something that we map all the time. When you're looking to forecast or do anything, you look at the height maps, but what does that mean? Right. So with a height map, you pick a specific pressure. And one of the most common and the one that we're going to use because it's my favorite is 500 hectopascals. 850 is where it's at, John. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, you get close to the surface. It's all complicated. (laughs) Oh, I see where you're going. All right. Nice. (laughs) So 500 hectopascals. Let's say that you want to launch a weather balloon from, I don't know, hundreds of sites around the country. And you record the altitude that they're at when they have an atmospheric pressure of 500 hectopascals. Okay. And then you make a plot of this. So you take a map and you draw a dot where each weather balloon was. And you write the altitude that 500 hectopascals was. Mm-hmm. And then you can contour it, which is something that we all had to do. You bought uh, colored pencils and Sharpies. Mm-hmm. And you would... You figure out what that surface looks like. Right. And so this is the same. It's it's interesting to me. Because, I mean, this is the same as making a topo map, which is just a contour map of equal elevations, except for it's an equal elevation map of a certain pressure up in the sky. And um, so it was fun when I was going through school because, you know, I was doing the same thing in geology as I was in meteorology, but just different... Uh, <laughs> Same colored pencils, but just different things that you're contouring. Um, and you yeah, can... that's, that's an excellent way to look at it, actually. It's just like yeah. a, a sky topo map. Right. That is exactly what it is. And so that's the variations you're seeing are where that, in this case, 500 millibar, because I refuse to say hectopascals, <laughs> where that 500 millibar surface is. So if you're looking at the differences in your sky topo map and you see that a 500 millibar is lower in an area than it is compared to another area. That means in that area, it's low pressure. Your column of air above you is shorter than everywhere else. Right. And so if you look at a 500 millibar (laughs) map, uh, you'll generally see numbers in the neighborhood of 4,600 to 6,000 meters above sea level. Right. Gotcha. So... Four to six kilometers, roughly. Different maps are made a little bit differently. A lot of times we knock off the last digit because we don't measure it that well anyway. (laughs) 
nice. Um, <laughs> it's not an exact science either. Um, yeah. <laughs> you could always tell in um, when we took synoptic meteorology, you could always tell the people who had to do the weather briefing for the day because they were sit- they were the ones sitting there early in the morning contouring out their height maps. Yes, and, you know, it may sound a little crazy, but at the Storm Prediction Center and many weather service offices, people hand contour oh, the data. They still do. I mean, it's the best way to um, it's the best way to stop and think about it and to truly understand your data. I just like just like geologists still hand contour their maps in the oil industry. It's the same exact thing. You can have a computer do it or you can do it by hand. And number 1, it looks like a piece of art and it's amazing. <laughs> and number 2, you have time to stop and think about the data that you're actually physically touching. And so you may think those colored pencils are silly, but they're actually helping you understand the processes that are going on a lot better than just looking at a predetermined contour map from a computer. Well, and also, you know, data, real data is messy, and sometimes there's bad data. It's a lot easier for a human to pick out that bad data. Right, exactly. And toss it out. And also, uh, contour lines are sort of like the the streams from the proton packs you're not supposed to let them cross (laughs) and occasionally uh, if you have data that's maybe too sparse or has bad data in it uh, some of the computer contouring programs can do some really interesting and completely invalid things oh right exactly and you get big bullseyes in places and it's like you don't want to misrepresent a cutoff low because that's a big weather maker here in the south um when it's not a cutoff low your contours just didn't work correctly right it was really you know something messed up the station right in the middle of arizona where there's one station or something right and it's probably yeah. a rattlesnake so yeah <laughs> yeah there you go so uh but we do see a lot of features in these maps, like we'll see things that would look like uh, hills and valleys on a topo map. Right. And I mean, we use the same sort of language for them, too, which is why I love the marriage of geology and meteorology. It's really the same thing. One's on the earth, one's above it. Um, because when you get these big high pressure areas, and you've probably heard your local weather person talk about this, if they're good, <laughs> um, <laughs> they talk about those being ridges. And then big areas of low pressure are troughs, and that's what they look like on the contours. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the ridges are generally, they bring in warmer air from the equator. Uh, the the troughs a lot of times can bring down cooler air from higher latitudes. Mm-hmm. Not always. Yeah. Uh, but we do know, you know, there's some, some effects there on atmospheric heights as well, in right. terms of warm air increasing the heights and cold air decreasing the heights. Uh but yeah, that's, these are a lot of your weather makers, and you'll often hear uh, storm chasers refer to the uh, high-pressure ridge that sets in in the summer as the ridge of death, and right. that's exactly. because there's no storms. It's just really boring weather. <laughs> and I mean, the other way to think about this, and I, I like this descriptor, even though it's used less, um, is that you call them a heat dome, and that sort of gives you that height of the atmosphere phenomenon with that higher pressure too is that this big heat dome sets up and that's exactly what it looks like three-dimensionally i guess we could yeah we could call it a heat anticline i guess (laughs) i like it you know and (laughs) we were talking about this uh, offline and i have never seen somebody plot this as a 3d surface i'm sure they have right Uh, yeah but i kind of want to go grab some data and do it 
It, yeah, or you can just wait. I'm sure someone in the Slack chat room will give us a link for that. Yeah, it's true. Hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, you know, and there's another funny thing. I didn't put this in the notes, so I'm just going to spring this on you. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. I remember talking about if you look at a polar plot of the Earth, which is a weird way to look at the globe. Yep. See map projections part one and two. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you can see these waves in the general atmospheric circulation, so-called Rossby waves. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what the critical Rossby wave number is? Oh, oh man! <laughs> Why would you do this? I do remember that the secure shell that we logged into was named Rossby. <laughs> oh yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Oh, I don't know it. I'm trying to wiki it really fast so it looks like I know it, but no, I don't. <laughs> so it's four. Yep, yep. If you look down on on a polar plot. And you see about four, and this is, once again, it's not exact. You kind of squint your yeah. eyes and tilt your head back at the monitor. <laughs> and you see about four wave things. Then that means that the weather pattern is going to be actually pretty much stationary. Ah. And with higher numbers, you can get prograde motion, where things move in their traditional west-to-east way up here in the north. And if it's lower, you can actually get retrograde motion, where systems move backwards. Oh, which is, yeah. Never good. You're never looking at stuff coming from the east. Right. And <laughs> that is the extent of what I remember about Rossby waves. <laughs> That's impressive. No. I was, from mesoscale. I was stuck on so, the secure shell. So. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's neat to look at these pressure maps of the atmosphere because it is sort of like topo or geology, but it's changing all the time. So it's really sped up. Or geology is really slowed down weather. Yes, that's what I say all the time. The same physics that affects rocks affects the clouds. Um, In fact, uh, my friend and I have a Pinterest board that says that's not a rock. And it's mostly atmospheric phenomenon that looks like rocks. (laughs) (laughs) Like you can get. Yeah, it's really actually quite impressive. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, we're we're nerds. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I mean, the answer is basically, yes, higher pressure is a larger column of air. But in terms of the scale of the atmosphere, it's kind of negligible. Exactly. Yeah. So that is the the 35-minute answer Uh (laughs) to to your question, Mike. (laughs) Brevity has never been in our, uh, (laughs) really our wheelhouse. Well, well, we thought this whole show was going to be 30 minutes total, like when we started the podcast, remember? We thought we were going to struggle to fill 30 minutes a week, and now we try to cut it down to an hour look at us go now it's just our listeners struggling to listen for 30 minutes a week <laughs> right yeah. uh, but there is there's more i knew you couldn't resist talking about how we measure it <laughs> yeah and i'm not going to really go into how the instrumentation works but i think most people will be familiar with the barometer mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. that one makes and sense that is how you measure atmospheric pressure. But I'm going to say that you should follow the link I'm going to put in the show notes and go build one of these barometers with a balloon. Uh, we did this in Sarkis when I came. Uh, that's the building that geology is in and meteorology was in um, at OU's campus. It's a tall building. The tall building. And so we did this and rode the elevator from the bottom yeah. to the top and tried the differences, you know, in the atmospheric pressure between the basement and the 15th floor. Yeah, and 
I did one of these when I was a kid. I don't remember if I saw it on Bill Nye or in a book or <laughs> something. I remember almost all the experiments on Bill Nye wow. were were requisite to do. Uh, but you, you stretch a balloon over the lip of a jar. And so that seals in some kind of pressure inside, mm-hmm. whatever the ambient atmosphere is. Rubber band it. You tape a straw on top. And then you have a barometer. If the air pressure outside becomes higher than the pressure in the jar, it pushes down on the balloon and the needle goes up. Mm -hmm. And if the air pressure outside is lower, then the pressure in the jar pushes up on the balloon and the needle goes down. Exactly. Which is why you talk about barometric pressure trends in terms of changing um, weather systems. What's coming next, right? Are you trending up? Are you trending down? Are you going to be death ridged or are you going to have a low pressure system and get storms right and this is also how you know i'm a big fan of flying around these little hobby drones Uh, the pressure sensors that we have are very good for a few dollars you can get a pressure sensor that can measure your altitude to within about yeah 10 or 20 centimeters based on the atmospheric pressure difference over Uh, that height that is impressive yeah, and in my living room, I have a <laughs> microbarometer that is down to 0.1 pascals, and you can actually see infrasonic signals, these long period waves that travel through the atmosphere. Oh, my God. Can you breathe next to it? And obviously, you could see that. Uh, yeah, I mean, air conditioning systems, doors opening, uh people pretty pretty much anything around affects it you're so. doing this podcast for an hour and a half every year every week <laughs> yes there is there's a heat dome uh, yeah, during exactly. this lots of hot air <laughs> yep so <laughs> oh that's crazy that's uh i didn't know it's so cheap yeah nice. yeah no they're really remarkably inexpensive now hmm. it's how your cell phone tracks how many flights of cl- stairs you climbed oh it doesn't do that very well but <laughs> well yeah it does its best <laughs> okay so that's that's where you're going to stop with instrumentation is literally a balloon over a jar that's impressive so we'll just move on um <laughs> right <laughs> and so one thing you hear about i mean if you're a nerd and pay attention to this stuff like i assume most of the people listening are is density altitude but you're gonna have to tell me a little bit more about that so density altitude is a really cool thing it is the air pressure Uh, or your pressure altitude. So, you know, this is airplanes, a lot of them uh, use pressure-based altimeters, like I just described for my hobby drones. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we just said that the temperature can affect the pressure, right? Yeah. So you need to correct that pressure altitude for a non-standard temperature because the atmosphere is pretty much never at standard atmospheric (laughs) conditions. Mm -hmm. Yes. So as the temperature and the altitude increase either one air density decreases Mm -hmm. so you could think of density altitude as it is the altitude at which the airplane feels like it's flying oh that's interesting so if it's hotter on the ground the airplane will feel like it's already some height in the air and that height is the density altitude huh interesting i'm assuming this is a sort of standard readout in planes uh, well, it's something you calculate, yeah. Oh, okay. And so you've got the temperature and you've got the the pressure from the tower. And so you can calculate what your density altitude is. And it's a problem, actually. Uh, oh. 
Yeah, because if you think about it, at a higher temperature, the density is less. Well, airplanes work on the principle of pushing Mm -hmm. this whole equal and opposite Mm -hmm. reaction thing with jet engines or propellers. So as the density altitude increases, the efficiency of a jet or a propeller at moving the plane goes down. There's less air moving over the wing, so the amount of lift provided by the wing at a given speed goes down. down. Yeah. Okay. So I'm imagining now those pictures of or videos of planes taking off in Nepal and how they just sort of fall off the end of the runway. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. So if you have a very, very high density altitude, it can actually mean that your plane cannot take off of the runway of a given length but if you wait until the evening when the air cools down you can take off just fine that's terrifying so they have had to do things like shut down the phoenix airport because Hmm. of a very high density altitude Hmm. that is interesting yeah so your plane can't perform well that's slow so you could have sluggish climb you could just not fly at all uh (laughs) Yeah, this is especially for heavy military planes. You know, like uh, the B-52 is a massive plane. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's one of those planes that a lot of times would have to worry about what density altitude they were at. That is really interesting. Yeah. So hmm. uh, a fun fact, if you're sitting on a hot tarmac someday to think about. <laughs> you're like, damn, that density altitude. <laughs> 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 Why do we feel like we're at 30,000 feet? Um, uh-huh. Yep. That's awesome. Well, hopefully that answered Mike's question. I yes, feel, and it, I, only, it only only took a little while. So Right. Yeah, see, exactly. I mean, that would have been an easy email to write, so I don't understand why we're doing this. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, so great. I'm super excited to move on because this is a real gem. <laughs> yeah, so I found a great paper for everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) That's the home cowbell. (laughs) Yeah. Man, I'm not kidding. This is my favorite one ever. I think this might be mine too. So this is the case of the disappearing teaspoons, a longitudinal cohort study of the displacement of teaspoons in an Australian research institute by Lim et al. (laughs) It's hilarious. It's so good. Gosh, BMJ has the best papers. Um, They really do. They do, man. We've gotten so many good ones. And this is just fantastic. It's exactly what it says. And this is clearly, this is from Australia, obviously. Um, But this is clearly sort of an Australian and British problem, which I find even funnier. Yeah, I I guess you could think about it as, well, we don't really have coffee spoons. Right. See, exactly. So. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Think of anything in your common areas that is always gone. In my case, the printers are always empty. Yeah, you could probably do this with pens or something like this. But um, Oh, yeah. So Lim, this research assistant, this is actually the objective of the study. was to determine the overall rate of loss of workplace teaspoons and whether attrition and displacement are correlated with the relative value of the teaspoons or the area where the... Uh, teaspoons we're at whether it's a common room or sort of a more closed off close to a lab room yeah and (laughs) this was uh uh, what i loved it so they did some uh, a pilot study right like like any 
good researcher that, and this is, you know, done mm-hmm. in a very medical fashion. So <laughs> and they, they did... got, oh, good. And they did this pilot study because they said they tried to Google and Google Scholar the words teaspoon, workplace, loss, and attrition, and revealed nothing about this phenomenon. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the pilot study. <laughs> and so in the, in the pilot, they bought 32 plain old stainless steel teaspoons. And they numbered them discreetly and distributed them into eight tea rooms around the Institute. And every week they went back and counted what spoons were where for five months. <laughs> well, um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So that was the, that was the pre, pre-study. And they determined that they've lost a bunch. And so they wanted to add some more spoons because they needed to. <laughs> and do a longitudinal study about the loss, the attrition of these teaspoons. So they had an additional 54 teaspoons. <laughs> now, this is uh, quickly getting out of hand. Oh, and my goodness. <laughs> they even varied it up a little bit uh, because they wanted to see if they threw some higher quality teaspoons into the mix. Did people preferably grab the fancy teaspoon and stick it in their cup of tea and forget about it. So this is the worst part of this paper is that it was not defined what was meant by higher quality teaspoon. And I'm envisioning something with like a real fancy handle That's and maybe exactly a what you know, I, that one fake jewel in it. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. That's Are they teaspoons from places like souvenir teaspoons? <laughs> like, um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was great. It's okay. You can just send your hate mail to both of us if right. you're a tea drinker. Exactly. Um, so they counted these teaspoons weekly for two months and then got tired. And <laughs> this is the best. Then fortnightly for the remaining three months counted the teaspoons. <laughs> right. <laughs> fortnightly. That was beautiful. <laughs> yes. And so they did this, like you said, for quite a while. And then eventually they let everybody in on their little secret. <laughs> <laughs> so this is impressive because it says after five months um 56 of the 70 teaspoons or 80 percent had disappeared and so this yielded a half-life <laughs> of teaspoons of 81 days so half had permanently disappeared after 81 days <laughs> compared with 63 days in the pilot study Right, and th- they also noticed that if it was a program-specific tea room, like a lab tea room, that the retention rate was significantly higher than in regular communal rooms. Right, exactly. And this this sort of phenomenon, which I think that a lot of people have probably heard of, the uh, tragedy of the commons, you know, we don't really take care of our common spaces very well. So it wasn't right. super surprising. So over the uh, the five thousand six hundred and sixty eight teaspoon days, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, a rate of point nine nine loss per one hundred teaspoon days, or three hundred and sixty point six two per one hundred teaspoon years. <laughs> no, okay. So this actually comes to a very shocking number because if you're going to assume one spoon for two people. To maintain a workable population of teaspoons, uh, you need 252 teaspoons 
to be purchased every year. Yeah, so this institute has 140 people working at it, and at the rate of attrition, they would each have two (laughs) teaspoons every year. That's unbelievable. So where do all the teaspoons go is the question. You know, I mean, are they in people's desk drawers? Are they in their coffee? Did they make it home? I have this problem with I have a special set of silverware that's supposed to live in my desk at work for me to eat lunch. And after it gets dirty, I bring it home. It goes through the dishwasher. And then it's supposed to go back to work. And I seem to have migrating utensils that end up neither place uh see my problem is when i wash my stuff at work and if i let it sit and forget to you know like immediately get it out of the sink because i'm easily distracted um i could see losing them that way but that's more like donating them to the common space as opposed to you know stealing them (laughs) right and well so they they extended this even further and they said that in melbourne which has a workforce of about two and a half million, that means that approximately 18 million teaspoons go missing in Melbourne every year. Laid end to end, these lost teaspoons would cover over 2,700 kilometers, the length of the entire coastline of Mozambique, and weigh over 360 metric tons, the approximate weight of four adult blue whales. Oh, man. (laughs) And so... (laughs) The discussion, where do they go? And beautifully, beautifully, <laughs> um, their speculative theory, according to Douglas Adams, right, is that somewhere in the cosmos, there's a whole planet full of spoons. Right. So, you know, they said there are planets for everything, humanoids, etc., super intelligent shades of the color blue, and a planet entirely given over to spoon life forms. <laughs> See, this is the importance of Hitchhiker's Guide in your life. It's true. Uh, it's so brilliant. And I mean, this is backing that up. This is all I see this as. This could be, this paper could be referenced in the newer editions of Hitchhiker's Guide, I feel. Yes. And, you know, but they say that there are some real consequences here, like real dollars that this is going to cost institutes. Because so they assume it's 75 bucks a year. Which doesn't seem like a lot, but for only an institute with 140 people, that's kind of a big expenditure, I think. Yeah, and I I like that they sent a survey out to everybody, and they said, this is anonymous, (laughs) we don't know who you are, but did you take our spoons? (laughs) And so there are questions like, have you ever stolen a teaspoon? If yes, from where? Have you stolen a teaspoon in the past year? If yes, from where? Uh, Stealing teaspoons is wrong. And there were responses from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Uh, And then how satisfied are you with with the teaspoon coverage in the Institute? Nobody said very satisfied. The overwhelming response was very dissatisfied. Oh, man, that's great. Because everybody keeps stealing their spoons, man. (laughs) Yep, and they all have to be in their desk drawers or something. Uh, yeah, they said they scanned the the office spaces when they were looking when they were making their counts, their fortnightly counts um, for their teaspoons. And after they revealed the study, um, four errant teaspoons came came back, which that was pretty good too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, one of the other things besides the um, economic consequence <laughs> that was stated was that 
teaspoon displacement and loss leads to the use of fork, knives, and staplers for measuring out coffee and sugar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you don't want to stir your tea with a stapler. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't work very well. (laughs) Yeah. Though, I mean, who hasn't, you know, eaten pudding with a fork at work Uh, one afternoon? Or your fingers. Or your fingers. Not me, obviously. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, this, it is in BMJ, the the British Medical Journal, which, as you said, we get a lot of stuff from. And they do this thing that a lot of medical journals do that I wish we did in other journals. It's so beautiful. (laughs) Where in the beginning of the paper, they have them have like a two-sentence intro, discussion, conclusions, all that. Uh, But then they have this box that is one sentence on what is already known on this topic, and then a couple of sentences on what this study adds. And it's in a box. It's called out. You cannot miss it. And if you look at that, then you can decide if you want to read the whole paper, which in this case, I did. (laughs) It's so great. (laughs) Um, Because what the study adds is people have no control over teaspoon migration, escape to a spoonoid planet, and resistentialism are equally plausible explanations. (laughs) Great. (laughs) That's beautiful. This paper was the best. (laughs) So that is your fun paper Friday, and it is open access, so you can get the PDF in the show notes for free. Even more beautiful. Right. (laughs) If you have a suggestion for a fun paper on missing utensils or... (laughs) Anything else that you think we would enjoy reading, uh, you can get a hold of us. Or if you've got more questions on really anything that Mm -hmm. we've talked about or maybe something that we haven't, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, Well, awesome audio comment, Mike. Someone else, keep it going. Uh, Send us audio comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We've also had some really good conversations on Twitter lately. We are at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And also swing by the swung.rocks Don't Panic chat room on Slack. Yes, we'll see you there. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.